Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Hello, everyone. Today we are here with Brianna, and we will be discussing The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. This is the last book discussion of the year, and as always, it will be a two-parter. So we'll discuss the topics in the first half of the book in this episode, and then continue through the rest of them in the next episode next week. Because we have a lot of thoughts about the 90s. We do. And it's I find it interesting because we are different. I was born early 90s, so a lot of things in the book I remember, at least culturally. Right. Where you were more like mid-90s. Yeah, I was later in the 90s, so I was barely alive for some of these things. Um, and most of what I know of is through like secondhand accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your overall impression of the book? I thought it was a really interesting read. There were some really cool revelations um, that I had never thought about. I feel like at times it's very dense. So fair warning if you try to, to take the plunge with this one, that he makes some like really intellectual statements that I'm like, wow, I did not process some of what was just said. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. No, uh, it was it was some very um, high intellectual like meta commentary, which is funny because I feel like part of the book is about the meta commentary and the irony of the yeah. '90s. So that was really interesting. Um, it was nice to see how um, he goes around and sort of like this cyclical way through popular culture, through mm-hmm. politics, current events at the time. And he works through all of these different areas and comes back to them as they apply. Personally, some of it went over my head, like some of the music things, and I had to ask my husband for explanation. Um, but I thought it was a really cool read, and I learned a lot. See, I feel like I was similar but different. A lot of the movie things went over my head, mm. because as we all know, I'm bad with movies. True. Um, but the music <laughs> things I got. Okay, so hopefully between the two of us, we will have enough understanding of yeah, this section. what's happening. Yes, yes, <laughs> precisely. Yeah, I found it very interesting. It felt like it tried to cram a lot of things into one. Yes. So I think it would be interesting for like further books that will probably start coming out that look at specific sections of the 90s. Right. Because I feel like I really haven't seen many like history books of the 90s coming through. That's true. I think it's finally reaching that part of like time when it can be categorized Mm -hmm. as history i know that oh what's the rule the subreddit for history like the history subreddit has like a rule of how many years things must be passed and i think the 90s are officially history according to that because it's getting to be like 30 years yeah Mm -hmm. yep i mean not very soon but sooner than we all think yes exactly (laughs) exactly okay so The first thing that I feel like he really goes into is um, Nirvana and Uh, Kurt Cobain. Yes. That was my first, like, oh, PJ, what do you think of these? And he's like, I hate it. (laughs) I hate it so much. He's like, it was just grunge. And they thought they were cool and innovative. And they only played four chords, something, something. And I think that's funny, because that's kind of uh, Klosterman's point, is that it was very, like, that nonchalant... You know what I mean? Like yeah. that don't care, blase, not taking life seriously attitude of music mm-hmm. that was like very alternative and definitive of that time frame. I enjoyed, I believe it was in here, 
he was like drummer extraordinaire Dave Grohl. And then if you watch any single interview with a Dave Grohl ever, he's like, I'm the worst drummer in the world. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's why he doesn't play drums in Foo Fighters. Oh my gosh. That's good to know. See, my favorite takeaway, this is where it was like, there was a lot of really fun little stories that I think I took away mm-hmm. from this book. And my favorite, one of my favorites at least, was when he talks about how Smells Like Teen Spirit the that um it's the deodorant yes yeah it's about the deodorant and that Cobain had no idea that that's what it was he didn't even get the reference he just thought it sounded cool I think so that was a really entertaining story to me yeah I I miss the smell of teen spirit deodorant that's a very (laughs) 90s like nostalgia thing for me yeah because it was purple oh yes it was I think I had a pink one though I feel like I had a pink one probably spanned all of the color spectrum yeah yeah i'm gonna have to find um, it during that because they talked about nirvana and then pearl jam a lot in oh, yes. the seattle music scene and all i kept thinking about was when i went out to seattle two years ago and we went to the pop culture museum they have a whole pearl jam exhibit that they worked with the band to create and there's like funko pops of them life size around oh wow and then they have their nirvana section which has like Kurt Cobain's MTV Unplugged cardigan and like candid photos and like guitars and drums and everything. And it was really fun. That does seem really cool, actually. Yeah, and I found his transitions between topics so interesting. Yeah. Because he really jumped all around. Yeah, it was pretty jarring. Yeah, because you went from like Kurt Cobain and like people committing suicide Yep. And like the 27 Club and all of that. Yep. Right into the Gulf War. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, a good okay. point. Yes. But I found his point about the Gulf War being kind of the first television war mm-hmm. very fascinating because I feel like you don't tend to think about wars in terms of how they are portrayed to the public through media. Right. You tend to think of them by, like, the actions that took place and, like, the battles and yes, that realm. But he really goes into how the people at home experienced it. Right. And how short it was. Because it didn't last very long. No. That is, that is an interesting thing to me, is seeing that. I, it felt like something that's referenced a lot as mm-hmm. like a big a big deal. But yeah, I didn't realize it was that short and that. And then we go into Ross Perot. Yeah. <laughs> One of the cool things about this book to me is how he makes a lot of like broad statements that apply almost universally and then applies them specifically to what he's talking mm-hmm. about. So funnily, one of the things I have noted from the Ross Perot section is the quote where he says that there are many humans still alive who can say that they voted for Ross Perot in 1992, but to ask them the motives for their decision, like if you spoke to them now, would be willfully asking for a misinterpretation because you can't ask someone to justify a decision they made three decades ago. So it was really fascinating to see how he talked about the way that our current ways of looking at the 90s and this becomes then a theme throughout the whole book Mm -hmm. is he's like well the way we look at the 90s through the lens of 2023 is a very different than how it was when it was actually happening yes and it's interesting to see that that comparison and the way that he addresses that throughout the book and it starts that was just the first time he said it that i really thought about it 
Yeah, and I think that's something that I find myself doing and questioning a lot because I remember a decent chunk of the 90s. So I think really, like, I came into consciousness in, like, 96-ish. So I remember the last half. Right. Like, so when you get, like, further into the book, I remember more and more things. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, things like that. So everything seems simpler when, like, looking back at it. But I always question if that was just because I was a child and, right. like, I wasn't aware of the problems happening. That's a good point. Or if it's because they actually were. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, because I think we all kind of like to look back with, like, a more optimistic lens than how it actually was. <laughs> yes, yes, precisely. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing, too, about this section is the way that... Is this the one, I think, where he talks about how people talk now about how the third-party candidate was what really... Like, the presence of a third-party candidate yeah. really shifted the election. And without him, mm -hmm. like, things could have come out completely differently. But we have no way of proving that. Like, there's no way to know yeah. that that's actually what happened. And from Ross Perot, he goes into... Sort of a discussion of language versus concepts mm -hmm. and how people were evolving in their social like expectations and ideas and thought, but the language wasn't catching up. Um, and he really goes into like terms for the LGBT community right? and how a lot of people were using language that today we would consider offensive. But then it was just how you talk about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also went into how certain songs and media seemed to push for, like, violence because mm -hmm. they were starting to go across cultures within society. Mm -hmm. um, and I found the most fascinating example was Ice-T. Because... <laughs> I, love I do! Because well, it talks in the book how, like, he had a very, like, inflammatory song that caused a whole lot of court cases. And because he existed in the space that was, like, rap, but it was also heavy metal, so it crossed, like, cultural barriers. Right. So it reached more people, so then people started getting concerned. But I just find it amusing that he's now just on Law & Order SVU, and that's what <laughs> everyone today knows him from. <laughs> that is really interesting. See, I was reading this section and I was particularly interested in, like you said, the language versus concepts mm -hmm. was interesting because the book referenced here, The Language Instinct by Steven Pinker, was actually mm -hmm. something I had to read in my undergrad for um, the equivalent of a linguistics class for English majors, where we, like, we, we talked a lot about language and where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to now have the historical contextualization of, okay, so this is the time where we started talking about, okay how does the way that we talk about things and the way that we conceive of things and think about things influence each other? Mm -hmm. And how do we go from ice tea, the, <laughs> the uh, edgy rapper metal guy to ice tea, the now uh, yeah. law and order? Yeah, it's just interesting how it seemed like the 90s was the time where all this stuff came to a head and then yes. went from there. Yeah. And then it goes into more music. With. I didn't understand a lot of this music stuff, Alyssa. You gotta guide me. But the, like the Atlantis Morissette, Liz Fair. 
I don't debacle. know. Debacle? Yeah, no. I'm not. Tell me Tell me stories. Um, all I know is that my parents loved Atlantis Morissette, so I grew up listening to Atlantis Morissette. Oh, really? Yeah. Hey. Yeah, we had like four main things in my childhood. It was like Atlantis Morissette, Celine Dion, Meatloaf. Wow. And then just like random other pop-ish music in there. My mom likes Nickelback. <laughs> See, this is where, okay, so you did skip over one concept I had noted early on, which is the interesting way that he opens the book by defining the people who experienced the 90s and grew up and came of age in the 90s as Gen X. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was an interesting comparison, because as someone born in the late 90s, my parents identify as, they are Gen X, but they identify as having grown up in the 80s. So they are much more influenced, I think, by 80s culture rather than That's 90s culture. That's how my culture. parents are, too. And it's interesting to see how, like, I want, I wish that there was a way to sort of understand. Like, his point here is that there's no way to generalize, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. it's such a specific sliver of the population that we're talking about when we make these assumptions about yeah. particularly what generation whatever mm-hmm. thinks and how they behave and how they act. So it's interesting to see this examination of the 90s. And no, my parents were the age I am now, like in the 90s. And they were coming of age and, and like developing their adulthood. Mm-hmm. But it was in a lot of ways different from what is talked about here, which surprised me. So that's interesting you say that because my thought was when well, my parents loved like hair metal, which is what was coming out of Vogue yeah. in this book and in what he's talking about in the 90s. Yeah, I have come to realize my parents were more of like the pop metal because mm. like my dad loves like brick springfield and like air supply oh. and those ones they weren't necessarily like they knew the other thing like my dad's one of those people that just knows a bunch of music all the time <laughs> i just remember growing up it was primarily like meatloaf Atlantis morissette celine dion interesting like yeah. and like the chicks okay and I think, like, vaguely Reba, oh, Reba. and Shania Twain. Like, that yes. was yes. where we existed in, right. in the music, from, like, my memory. Right. And what I, like, point to as, like, oh, that's nostalgic. Yeah. And, like, Counting Crows and, like, that. Okay. That makes sense. So what were your takeaways about this section, then? I felt like it was odd, um, mainly just because I feel like it was gen x but it wasn't at the same time yeah i think of gen x as like 80s yeah and then like older millennials are probably 90s yeah yeah that makes sense because my cousins are like 10 to 15 years older than me and they were very in 90s culture like had the windbreakers with the different colors and (laughs) Yes. All of that. So that's what I think of 90s, and they're still technically considered elder millennials. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Where I feel like I fall more towards, like, the middle. Right. Older. Right. And this is where it's also interesting, because in that sense, I think we would say we disagree a bit with Klosterman's Mm -hmm. identification of who was most impacted by Mm -hmm. 90s culture, or most identified with 90s culture is a better way of putting it. But then the other interesting comparison he makes um, fairly early on, I think, or somewhere in the middle here, is 
he calls he calls them just group A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. But when he talks about the innovations of technology, I think it's the advent of the internet, right? Yeah. So he says group A are the people who had lived the bulk of their existences before the internet mm-hmm. and would not really have to adapt to using it much, if at all. Group B were the people who existed in the middle, where they were probably in their adulthood and adapting to a world where they would still live half of their lives with the internet. Mm-hmm. And then group C was the group that grew up and that was all they knew. And I think that's the more interesting designation to yeah. me that he makes is sort of how internet and that sort of culture shaped. Because I think a lot of people in the 90s who were most shaped by the 90s were that middle group that were sort mm-hmm. of new and remembered and consciously experienced life before, but also now had to learn a life after technology like the internet. Yeah, and strangely, like that's the group I identify most with. Mm-hmm. Because I remember as a kid, we didn't have a home computer. We didn't have any of that. Like, I remember the rotary phones. We had those. It was like a big deal to go over my best friend's house and play the little Barbie game on her computer. (laughs) Yes. Like, that was ancient now. Right. And I remember, like, even in school, I don't think we had computers until I was in, like, third or fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And when we would go to like the computer lab, which was like hardly ever, you would like sit there and you would just play like kid picks and like draw photos or play like math blaster. <laughs> like yes. that's what my memory of like technology was. Like there wasn't internet. There wasn't like I mean obviously there was internet, but there wasn't like search engines or social media or anything like that you like went on there. You played your little game. You got bored. You left. Right. If you looked up something, you would use, like, Ask Jeeves, and he'd be, like, the butler standing there. Yes, yes. But I remember, like, as a kid, like, we didn't have any of that. I remember beepers. Like, they were the big thing. Yeah. I saw those in movies. (laughs) I remember, like, not everyone, but, like, a good chunk of the people I knew had them. Wow. And then I, I remember, like, you would go places and, like, It'd be like, call me when you get there. And, like, you literally had to, like, go into somebody's house and be like, hi, can I use your phone? And, like, dial your house phone number and, like, memorize all of the numbers that you needed. I still remember a lot of the phone numbers from then. That's true. I do remember some phone numbers from my youth. Yeah. And then now I'm just kind of like, how did you know if people were alive? Yeah. (laughs) I know. I think about that. I think about that sometimes. And he does address that where Mm -hmm. he talks about, I don't remember what section it was in, but he says something about you made plans with someone and you went, there was no texting someone if you got stuck in traffic or if like you had to cancel because someone was sick. It was, you established the plans. And once you left to go to those plans, that was it. Yep. Yeah. I'm sorry. I derailed us. Where were we? You're fine. We were talking about music and then I went into the music and that's fine. Um, The next thing he goes into is Blockbuster. I miss Blockbuster so much every day. See, I don't have a very distinct memory of Blockbuster. Blockbuster was the best. You would go in. My friends and I would go to Blockbuster. We wouldn't even go for like a specific movie. We were like, we want to go in. We want to find the worst horror movie we can find, right? Badly written, badly produced, awfully acted. We want the worst thing we can find. So you would go in and it was just like walls. And you just looked at them and you're like, this looks stupid. And so we would get it and then like go home and like have a sleepover and watch it. Oh my gosh. 
I've watched so many movies that, like, I don't think anyone's, like, seen. Which really speaks to my level of, like, visual pop culture. Yeah. Because that's what, like, I grew up on. So that's, right. I'm like, who here has watched Death Tunnel, where they broke into Waverly Hills and illegally filmed the movie there? Like, mm. no. Yes. <laughs> that was, yes. like, it, and then at the checkout line, they would have, like, the movie theater candy and, like, popcorn buckets that you could buy while you were renting your movie. Oh, um, yes. And then as it got, like, later... They also had video games that you could, like, rent, too. And then when they were going out of business, they, like, sold everything. And I remember I got, like, a Pirates of the Caribbean game for the Wii. Oh, my gosh. I'm entertained because I'm, like, sometimes I think about it. And I'm, like, well, the library is just a free version of Blockbuster. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting that it's, like, a service that... I mean, I guess there's a lot of those, right? Where it's a service yeah. that you pay for, but that you can easily get for free at the library. Yeah, I would also rent things from the library. That's but true. But Blockbuster was like an experience. That does sound like a, yeah, that makes I, sense. Strangely, with the, I think of like renting movies from the library as a kid, I just vividly remember VHSs. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Which are very hard to find now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a fun section about sports. Neither of us are real sports ballers. No. (laughs) We're not those kind of people. But I will say that I personally found it interesting. So one of um, our very best friends is very into sports. Mm -hmm. He follows all kinds of sports. His dad's a big sports fanatic. Like, that's their family. And so I was talking to him after reading this section about how I was most struck by the way that in the 90s, the college football league leagues plural it was set up so that it was all of these different bowls like i know i've heard of the rose bowl Mm -hmm. and there's the cotton bowl and all of those bowls and they just never had an actual like championship and they would do that thing where i think he said that the coaches would nominate that what they thought was the best team and then the popular voters would vote and then they would just kind of have those people compete Sometimes, but then often it was just a general vote and you would never know. And so there's all these years where it's contested who the best college football team was because they just never had an established winner. And it's interesting because to me, the coolest thing about this comparison, other than the fact that that's mind boggling, that people Mm -hmm. just didn't have that certainty, is how Glosserman talks about how that is indicative of the fact that in the 90s, it was the end of the era where things were not guaranteed. Like you were not able to always know things Mm -hmm. because now that we're in the internet age, you can find correct answers on the internet. You can find definitive answers. Like we're in a much more fact-based society where if you're in an argument with a friend, it's very easy to pull out that lovely digital device in your pocket and like fact check each other. Whereas then things could still be debated and considered that way. Yeah. I don't have many memories of like, typical sports in the 90s i did also find it interesting someone not in this book but someone did point out to me my mother loves the cowboys we do not live in texas i don't know why so many people love the cowboys and then someone once explained to me that the cowboys and they also said the yankees were examples of teams that like in their prime especially in the 90s succeeded so much that they were seen as like the quintessential american team in their respective Mm -hmm. sports and so because the cowboys had such an amazing success rate in the 90s to the point where the year pj was born his uncle wanted his family like his mother to name him troy (laughs) 
after Troy Aikman because he was born just like weeks from the Super Bowl where the Cowboys won. So like it was such a big cultural moment in because he was born around the same time mm-hmm. as uh, as Alyssa was. So it was like it's interesting to see how that uh, sort of cultural phenomenon happened and has been lasting such that now, honestly, 30 years after that happened, people still favor those teams. Yeah. I don't fully understand sports. That's, <laughs> that's, that's okay. Yeah. I was also interested in the fact that, so as someone who's never really read books about sports, because mm-hmm. I'm not a sports person, I did love this section, shockingly, more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And I was thoroughly entertained by the way that he talks about Michael Jordan's career and oh, how he yeah. just decided to play baseball for a little bit in the middle yeah. there. And I find that so entertaining. So entertaining. I feel like it's an odd thing, though, because... Now I feel like it's kind of like normalized when like people retire, they just go play baseball. <laughs> it's the thing, yeah. the thing to do. Well, and that was the other really interesting part of this was how he talked about how baseball sort of lost its status in a lot of ways over mm-hmm. the course of the 90s, particularly with the strike that happened um, in 94, I believe it was, um, that changed yeah. the face of baseball because it, it really disillusioned mm-hmm. a lot of fans. Um but my other favorite takeaway from that part was that baseball is one of the few sports that has not changed so fundamentally since its inception that you could bring Babe Ruth back from the dead as, what did he, I think he, the quote was amazing. He said something like an overweight alcoholic um, in his like middle age yeah. could still compete today against modern baseball players. Whereas if he brought back the early football players, they would have no way no. of competing against modern They'd modern be like, players. what is this helmet? Yeah, they. It, it's just not the same. Whereas baseball is one of the few sports that hasn't fundamentally changed in all of that mm-hmm. time. And I thought that was really cool. And maybe it is why a lot of people still hold that nostalgia yeah. and find it that like sport to go back to he also discusses napster do you remember napster at I've, all? I've heard discussion of napster but i need context you know napster was a wild time so you would download it it was 100 percent illegal <laughs> like let's be clear here but everyone used it you would download it and then you would search for whatever song you wanted and then it would take like five minutes to download like a two minute song wow and then you would just like listen to it so is this like the 90s equivalent of limewire that became it was popular the original LimeWire. Oh, okay okay yeah. okay that makes sense i mean i really didn't use napster all that much i just was slightly too young to care about napster mm-hmm. um and then metallica sued it and that's why it went away Yeah, I thought this, my favorite part of this section was the the way that he talks about the idea of intellectual property and Mm -hmm. theft and how obviously like if you steal a physical CD from someone, you're like taking it out of their possession and they no longer have it and now you have it. Mm -hmm. But the hard part with these sort of the advent of these different uh, ways to pirate music is that technically you're not taking anything away from the person who's sharing it because they still have access to it. So it became that like undefined territory Mm -hmm. that we have obviously since established. I think that our intellectual property um, understanding has obviously grown a lot in the past couple of decades because this is where those conversations had to start happening was like, okay, but we have to talk fundamentally, like what's going on here? Why is it wrong Mm -hmm. to copy this music and then share it so widely? Especially I was interested in the way that Klosterman talks about 
the fact that the profits went to these big companies rather than to the artists. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people would still argue, but they're not stealing from the artists because the artists see so little of the actual profit from individual sales. So it's interesting that sort of debate at play and the issues it raises. So one of the fun things that Klosterman touches on are clear beverages. I loved that. That was fascinating. Um, I remember them. I don't think I... Well, obviously, I wasn't drinking Zima as a five-year-old. Hank and John Green have a very distinct bit on one of their podcasts about Zima. I don't remember yeah. it very clearly, but they did talk about it as like a, it awoke a nostalgia in them to hear about it. Yeah. Know, like the existence <laughs> of it. They were like, I can't believe that was a thing. And Crystal Pepsi and yes. Tablier. And then all of the decor was like clear. Mm-hmm. I liked... I, I do remember Crystal Pe- Pepsi. Mm-hmm. I have a concept of that. The funniest thing to me that I did not know in this section was, is it Tab Clear? Yeah. Tab Clear was created basically to just absolutely obliterate Crystal Pepsi from the market. Yep. And it succeeded by making it a terrible product that next to Crystal Pepsi made it look like Crystal Pepsi must also be a terrible mm-hmm. product. And therefore they tanked their own product to bring Pepsi down. Yep. That was so interesting. Yeah. It was like guerrilla warfare, <laughs> but for marketing in the of clear aisle. Yeah, clear <laughs> the soda aisle. <laughs> guerrilla marketing in soda yeah. aisle. Oh my gosh. That was so interesting though. And that's true. The clear thing is very um, popular. Even the cover of the book is a uh, one the of clear those. Phone. Yeah, it's my the friend telephone. had that phone. <gasps> With all of the like you could see all the yeah. inner workings. And that mesmerizes me that this was appealing. That's um so it's so great. I would buy clear stuff now if I could. Really? Yeah. Is it for the same reason he talks about, though, that you want to know what's in it? Or just because it looks cool? No, just because it looks cool. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You are a symptom of the problem. (laughs) That's Um, so interesting. See, I don't know. In some (laughs) ways, it's interesting. In other ways, I don't think I need to know all the inner workings. But then they had, like fun clear things like you have the game boy clear that was like purple and you could like see all the stuff inside i have seen those yeah the different gaming consoles that had like the best that is pretty cool then he goes into the real world and kind of the advent of reality television i don't remember watching any of them then i am obsessed with the uk version of big brother Mm -hmm. and especially the uk version of celebrity big brother and you know it's all like kind of manufactured people are putting on personas all that but it's just fun yeah i remember the real world and now i feel like they just have people whose career it is to be on reality television shows right because now i think they still have the real world but it's like real world road rules and they have all competitions and everything else on mtv But back then, it was just like, oh, these people live in an apartment. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not familiar as much with that side of television. I don't experience it as much, but it is interesting to see where it came from. Um, And then we have the more science-y things, which was like Biosphere 2 and cloning. I had never heard of Biosphere 2, may I say? I did. Oh, my goodness. That was so fascinating. The idea of just creating this entire ecosystem that could sustain and then it was interesting to be like the flaw with it was that they didn't create enough oxygen and then they had to pump in all of this oxygen Mm -hmm. because they had depleted it to like that dangerous percentage i felt kind of sad that all the bugs died i know yeah and it's interesting the things that we can't always account for like they talk about how they didn't 
obviously expect it was was it the bugs and the birds and everything that were supposed to pollinate all died and then they didn't realize and then that led to the low oxygen levels so as much as we can try and simulate and create this contained universe it there's always things we may not realize will Mm -hmm. happen yeah that was wild and then fears over cloning i think is something that's still being discussed but in a new way in today's age yes of like robots yeah that's true i mean I think we're clones of each other. And I think that's my <laughs> last takeaway on cloning. Okay. I have to add my signature weirdness to the end of every episode. I didn't feel like I was weird enough in that one. <laughs> All right. So um, this is the end of this episode. So if you have any questions, comments, want us to discuss something about the 90s that you think of um, that may or may not be in the next half of the book, let us know. Call the library at 570-348-3000. Or email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Thank you.